Oftentimes, we as Christians find ourselves comfortable with our faith. It's easy to coast through life with the mentality that when we die, we'll go to heaven. But what if sanctification isn't just intended for determining where we go after this life? What if sanctification plays a crucial role in who we are today? Not only are we pronounced legally something, and even drawn into a family as beautiful as that is, but we are also cleansed and changed. That's coming up on today's edition of Belonging and Becoming, hosted by Asbury University President, Dr. Kevin Brown. This is part two of our discussion with Asbury Professor Dr. Thomas McCall on Wesleyan theology and why it matters today. If you haven't listened to part one of this podcast, we invite you to check that out. Today, we're focusing on the idea of sanctification and what that looks like in Wesleyan theology. And now we continue with more of that interview. I want to switch gears a little bit, and we can get into some of this theological vocabulary. As Christians, we obviously talk about salvation, but there's this idea of sanctification. And how might you describe sanctification in our tradition? I don't know if that is switching so much. You set us up well, right? Um, because the way I say it, so we do talk, we use terms like salvation in churchy talk and in Christian theology, obviously. And we use sometimes, not as much, but terms like sanctification. I, I view salvation as sort of the, an umbrella type term, right? Mm-hmm. This is what God does to rescue or redeem broken sinners who are incapable of rescuing or redeeming themselves. Mm-hmm. We can't fix ourselves. We can't rescue ourselves. Salvation is the broader category of the things that God does. And then underneath that sort of umbrella, theologians have, and Wesley's part of this, obviously, have used different subcategories or different elements. And I think they're just following Scripture. In Scripture, there's legal language. There's legal language to refer to our condition or our relationship before God, period, just as creatures. In Genesis 1, God is portrayed as sovereign, authoritative, powerful, But the first thing he says about humans there is, let them have dominion. So there's Mm -hmm. something about being sovereign, even, you know, with a lower sense, lowercase s, that's to be in God's image, right? So this is legal, royal sort of language. Our sin is described this way, right? It's breaking a law. There's legal code. There's royal and then legal language, which runs right with it. That's all the way through. It describes us as creatures. That same sort of language describes us as sinners and shows our condition. And then when it comes to being saved, there's this corresponding set of pictures that unfold. It's law court imagery. We are guilty, and then God's work in Christ pardons us. Even though we're guilty, we're pardoned. And this is echoed in, say, Charles Wesley's great hymn, where he says, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine, right? It's this beautiful language. It's a beautiful picture. It's a legal picture. And I think it's biblical, and Wesley saw it, Wesley affirmed it, Wesley preached it. But that's not all. There's also language of regeneration or new birth. There's language of adoption. So those are family categories. And so, again, there's this train of biblical teaching that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. It's far more pronounced in the New Testament, but it is there in the Old Testament of God's people as God's children. Uh, Exodus 4.22 refers to Israel as God's firstborn son which is a missionary text. God plans on having more if he refers to this as his firstborn. But anyway, there is this family sort of language. The psalmist talks about 
As the heavens are high above the earth, so great is the Lord's mercy toward As a father has mercy on his children or pity on his children. Right? So this language is there. And Jesus portrays this really powerfully and vividly. For instance, in Luke 15, this parable of what we sometimes call the prodigal son and with it, the parable of the elder brother. It's actually just one story. It's not two parables. It's one story. And the, the two boys are minor characters compared to the main one. And the main one is actually stated for us very clearly in the first line of the story. The first line is, a certain man had two sons. The story's about the father. And you get this familial imagery, right? You get this family language. Well, when it comes to sin, the picture then is of estrangement. Uh, Very, again, very, very vividly portrayed in Luke 15. It's basically this younger son is saying, if you won't hurry up and die, can we at least pretend you're dead? Then the picture of salvation and of grace is of a father looking and seeing his son far off. You only see someone far off if you're looking for them, by the way. Uh, He sees them far off and then runs toward him. And sorry if I sound like I'm preaching here, but this, this, I remember, very, very clearly remember the first time I was reading Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. And I came to this place where he's defining, as Aristotle does, and then describing the magnanimous or great man, the big dude, the Mm -hmm. the really powerful one. And he just defines him, and then he describes him. And the description has this phrase that says, he never runs. And the account there is, the more powerful you are, the greater you are, the more people run to you. So you never run, because to run shows need or lack of some kind. The stronger you are, the bigger dude you are, the more they run and the faster they run to you. The picture Jesus paints there, I remember when I read that passage in Aristotle, I remember setting the book down, and I was just floored because I was immediately was just taken to the contrast between Aristotle's view of greatness and the one Jesus gives us of our Father in Luke 15, where the Father drops everything and sprints. So much for his glory, so much for his whatever, he just wants to get there. So it's this picture of family life, and there's different ways that gets unpacked in the New Testament. Adoption language, very, very powerful imagery. New birth, Jesus says you must be born again. All this family language. One of the ways, again, that salvation or is unpacked overall is, back to your question finally, sanctification. And that is, it's the truth that not only are we pronounced legally something, and even drawn into a family as beautiful as that is, but we are also cleansed and changed. And here, one of there's different ways Scripture unpacks this too, but one of the ways it portrays it is actually through nuptial language. Dennis Kinlaw, right? We have a whole library name for him. He was <laughs> wonderful in talking about this, how sin is portrayed uh, over and over and vividly and horrifically as unfaithfulness, as adultery, as prostitution. And salvation, in this sense, includes God cleansing, taking the person who has defiled himself or herself, taking the person who has thrown himself or herself into the arms of someone else, maybe even just to spite the lover. The picture of sanctification is of God changing that person's affections you talked about, Mm -hmm. you were just talking about. God so cleansing and renewing those affections that they are turned toward God. This is a picture of holiness. It's a picture of holy love. To me, this is really powerful. To me, this is one of the the signal moments of Wesley's theological insight, is his understanding that it's not a pick or choose, a smorgasbord view of salvation. Either I'll take justification or I'll take sanctification. It's that God's vision of what he wants of life with us is broad enough to include all of that and deep enough to actually make it happen, strong enough to, to see it through to completion. 
Thomas Oden was a, as you know, Wesley scholar at Drew. He's since passed. And he's talking about Wesley and money and had this really interesting expression that for Wesley, money was training ground for eternity. And beyond just talking about money, I thought that was a really interesting expression that the activity we do now is orienting us or not. <laughs> toward a heavenly reality. And C.S. Lewis had a, a lot of similar language around this. Certainly the Great Divorce book captured this idea, the, the gates of hell are, are locked from the inside. I used to share a poem with our students by Emily Dickinson, who has not found the heaven below will fail of it above. God's residence is next to mine. His furniture is love. That if I can't get this right here, what makes me think that in another reality, in a heavenly reality, I will have it right. And maybe, maybe now I'm in a heavenly reality. So I, if someone said, why is sanctification important? And I've maybe similar to the, I beat you two to one on the Wesleyan quadrilateral. I've, I've heard, well, I'm saved, but I've, I've chosen not to be sanctified because I've hit level one and that's enough to punch my ticket, so to speak. And my understanding of that from authors like Wesley and Lewis and others is that if, if I'm cultivating selfishness, if I'm hoarding my wealth, if I'm xenophobic, if I'm racist, if I'm mistrustful, if I don't like others, if I'm poisonous, slanderous, if I'm suspicious, if I view people as obstacles, if, if my understanding of freedom is total autonomy, uh, leave me alone, uh, this kind of unencumbered life, the question of whether I get into heaven seems less relevant to me than the question of what I want to be there. I may hate a heavenly reality if those are my affections. I've mentioned before in a chapel, a, a book, uh, Notes on the Tilt-A-Whirl, is N.D. Wilson, and he, he tells a story. That there's a dinner, and there are different professors there, and there are students. One of the students says, she's an atheist, and she says, do you think I'm going to hell? And she has a Catholic and Protestant professor with her. And she's surprised by the Protestant professor's answer. They say, don't you want to? And there's a pause, and the professor just simply says, God is who he is. Do you want to be with him? And I love, it's shifting the question, not do you get in? Do you want to be there? And that's more relevant. What I'm hearing you say from sanctification is, this is this orientation towards a heavenly reality is that is not simply there, it's here, and it's not simply then, it's now. Uh, that that we're living into. And I think it's important for us to keep in mind the already but not yet aspect of this. So it will be more than it is. I take your point to be, and I fully affirm it, there there has to be some continuity. Yes, between. yes. I, I well heard said. a uh, philosopher of religion talking about this once, and he, he was referring to heaven and hell, and he used the phrase ersatz heaven, which is, took me a second, but basically the way he was describing it is a place with really good air conditioning and comfortable furniture and maybe video games or whatever, right? <laughs> and other, no, it's he, he, because his point is goes to what you were saying. It's hard to think of anything that would be more miserable than to be in the presence of the Holy One while harboring rebellion and hatred and against God or against God's people. It's hard to think of anything worse than that. And so a lot of people mean when they talk about sort of going to heaven or something, is just going to a comfortable place where they'll be left alone. And he's like, that's entirely missing the point. That's not heaven. That's our sats heaven. That's this fake copy that we want to invent. So I, I do want to come back to and connect this with the early part of our conversation. And that is to say that here's where sometimes this sort of 
stunted view of salvation. Like, I got level one, that's enough for me. That has really devastating ethical consequences Mm. and also horrible consequences for our attempts at mission and evangelism. People see through that. We see through that. And so to be, to belong to God is to have this change of affection. It includes like these various elements I was talking about, justification and new birth and belonging to the family, but it cannot be reduced to having your legal status changed, sort of a a get out of hell free card, like that's being saved. That's really quite to miss the point. And here's where I do wish that some people who claim the label Reformed or Calvinist these days would live into their own tradition more deeply and really access and appreciate and imbibe the resources of the deep Reformed tradition, the 16th and 17th century Reformed theologians who had a lot to say about these things and had some things that are actually kind of surprising to say, things like saying that sanctification, says the Reformed scholastic Johannes Heidegger in the 17th century, says is our greatest need, Hmm. our Hmm. uh, language is summum. So, uh, our highest or greatest ultimate need is our sanctification. Having our legal status changed is a wonderful thing, but it's not the thing. And this is where, again, Wesleyans aren't the only people who believe in sanctification, thankfully, but this is a message that Wesley and Francis Asbury and others thought that the Methodist tradition, the Wesleyan tradition, had been especially called to proclaim and to proclaim scriptural holiness throughout the land. And to see that not only change individuals' hearts, but also to change society. And that's, again, it's really easy for us to turn sanctification into a kind of legalism, right? So, God does gets us legal status change or whatever, then the rest of it's on you. And that can turn into a kind of works righteousness legalism, and it can go either there's a kind of conservative and a kind of progressive versions of this. Both are pretty awful. <laughs> you know, the conservative kind is, you know, don't do this list of bad things, and then right. there's a list. Drink, smoke, cuss, or chew, go, don't, you know, that, that you know, and that, <laughs> that's it. Do. Exactly. Yeah, there we yeah. go. Yep. <laughs> On the other hand, I mean, there's progressive lists too, you yeah. know, it's just a different list. Yes. But you do those things and you're canceled immediately. Like, and it's like, you have to sort of earn a certain status. And the Christian view of this, especially in the Wesleyan inflection of it, is so different. It's that God is changing us from the inside out, changing our affections, reorienting us toward the good, the true, and the beautiful and giving us hope, and that this actually then works its way out. So it starts inside, but it really does something when it gets out. That's why Wesley, one side of his mouth, he'd tell his preachers, you have nothing to do but save souls to the circuit-writing preachers. And at the same time, he's exhorting them to be active against child labor, against mistreatment of women, against mistreatment of animals, against slavery for sure. He's fired up about all these social causes. At the same time, he's telling people, his circuit writers, save souls. For him, this is real, but it's not sort of outside in. It works itself inside. So, our affections are changed. The things we care about, the things we crave, the things we fear, the things we hate, those are transformed. And as those are transformed, we're actually able to love our neighbor. That's so well said. I really appreciate, too, the sense of harm that can be created I'm thinking of a bumper sticker, another bumper sticker (laughs) that said, Christians are just like you, but forgiven. Exactly. Yep. And I've thought before, that would be a pretty offensive bumper sticker if I grew up in uh, an agnostic or non-believing household 
that, okay, so you and I are the same, but you've offered some kind of cosmic phrase that allows you to be in the heaven with air conditioning while I have to like melt in sulfur or something like, I mean, those are all caricatures, of course, but I see that as not a benign statement. That would be very harmful to those who would not subscribe to my beliefs and and my faith, as opposed to this kind of first Peter idea, like who's going to condemn you for doing good? And not doing good for the sake of doing good and not doing good for the sake of looking good in front of people, but because of everything you just said, your heart is reoriented, your heart is drawn, your affections are changed so that you have this kind of animus and motivation to act in ways that are just very difficult to challenge. Roy Hattersley is is an atheist in the UK and just wrote this brilliant article about Christians and the charity work that they do. And he he thinks everything that Christians believe is complete rubbish, but he's like, who in the world can argue that uh, when there is a disaster, they show up and they show up because they love. And maybe I don't believe what they believe, but we should be so guilty. Fascinating. A fascinating witness. I, I do want to mention this earlier. I, I might be remiss if I didn't mention it again. It's just remembering the what Reformed theologians like to talk about, avoiding a quote-unquote over-realized eschatology. Basically, remembering these sort of already but not yet aspects of yes, this. Right. So that we either, on the one hand, don't throw up our hands in despair and say, well, maybe God will make it better after we're all dead. Right? <laughs> right? right. Um, on the one hand. And as long as we got our get-out-of-jail-free cards because we said the magic phrase at some point in our lives, that's all that matters, right? Avoiding that on the one hand. On the other hand, avoiding despair because we haven't reached this sort of the levels we want to reach right now, and avoiding the sort of cynicism that can come with that, and yes. realize that in Christ, the decisive victory has been won. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As is repeated, uh, God has given us everything needed for life and godliness, right? It's happened. Decisive victory has been won. But the final victory has not yet been won. And we are going to live in a world in which you and I still face temptations. You mm-hmm. and I still have room to grow. I mean, we all do. It's right. it's so, on the one hand, avoiding the, the sense of like, well, nothing really happens until we're dead, right? Nothing really matters. Salvation is just stuff after we die. And on the other hand, remembering um, that this is, we are, we are in the in-between moment. Yes. And there is this already already decisively won in Christ, but not yet finally accomplished, right? We still live in that, and we're going to experience that individually and socially, societally. That's no excuse to give up, but it is, a, I think, a realistic biblical view of the process of being sanctified individually and how that works out more broadly. Yes. You mentioned Aristotle earlier and this Aristotelian, there is an Aristotelian idea of eudaimonia that when we inculcate the virtues into our life, it's actually our best life. And Outler said of Wesley that he is a eudaimonist, which I always thought was really fascinating. And Wesley even made comments about holiness is happiness. Uh, Now, happy is a freighted expression, but I, I was wondering if you could speak to this idea a bit, because it seems to be another theological strand that at least would would fly in the face of, at the very least, what I grew up with, which was a kind of, people are going to party and do a bunch of fun stuff, and I'm a Christian, so I have to engage in these boring 
prudish puritanical things and miss out on the fun. But oh, oh boy, when I die, then I'm going to have fun. And then those poor people are, are going to be miserable. So we're just kind of waiting around to be swept away to this kind of heavenly reality that's enjoyable, where Wesley seems to be saying something different. And I, I was wondering if you could speak to that. You're right. I think the tradition you're talking about, when we sort of translate it or, or move straight into the sort of term happiness, I mean, I think my kids think happiness is kind of a boomer word or something, right? <laughs> right, right. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, it, it can be loaded up with a lot of connotations that we probably wouldn't want. Nonetheless, the basic point is this is about well being and about fulfillment. And this is one thing I wish I would have learned earlier, and I wish I would teach better, and I wish I would maybe live out better now. That holiness, that is receiving and being transformed by and then extending the holy love of the triune God, it's the best thing for us. It's what mm. we're made for, right? Yes. So to go back to sort of the, and I know I'm, I'm sort of caricaturing it, but to reduce salvation to you said a prayer once so you can escape going to the bad place yes, and go to the place with better air conditioning, right? <laughs> to reduce salvation to that is to miss the point that God wants far more for us. I might be comfortable. We might be okay with that because that gets us out of trouble, but gives us our own space and doesn't expect too much or whatever. God wants more for us than that because God knows what's best for us. So he wants this for us. We sometimes want to know God's will for our lives. You know, we want to know, and usually that means, you know, when I was 20 years old, it meant, will she be blonde or will she be brunette, (laughs) right? I mean, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, will she be tall, right? I mean, it's just, it. we want to know God's will. And that's great. Pursue God's will, seek it, you know. But some things are really clearly spelled out as God's will. And we don't have to wonder about those. And one of those is, Paul says it really clearly in the fifth chapter of his first letter to the Thessalonians. This is the will of God, your sanctification. It's the best thing for us. It's what Lewis, you know, great C.S. Lewis, he has so many great ways of putting things, but it's what we would choose if we knew. What God's will for us is what we would want if we actually knew, if we knew what God knows. And God's will for us is that we be transformed this way. It's for our good. He knows what's best and he wants what's best, even when we may not know or may not even think we're worthy of receiving it. You know, back to our to Luke 15 and yeah. the sort of parable of the, what we used to call the parable of the prodigal son. Recall what he says when he plans to come home. I'll go home and I'll say, just make me a hard servant. And he can't even hardly get those words out of his mouth. And the father's just like, stop, and throws his arms around him and brings him home as a son and throws a celebration for him. That's such a different view. That's what God wants for us. We might think, well, I'll never be worthy. I'll never get up to that level. I'll never, it can't happen for me. One of the great things I just really do appreciate about the Wesleyan emphasis on sanctification is the, I know the word may be overused, but it's the egalitarianism of it. It's not intended for a select group. Yes. It's not for the people who are already in a really good position like there's this great selection process, and you might be one of the very few who qualify for this. No, it's he understands it to be God's will for everyone. And so this is for the coal miners who are staggering out of the ground at 4 a.m. after mm-hmm. a shift in, in the Welsh mines, who are tempted then to go get dead drunk for, you know, the, one of the slogans at the time, drunk for a penny, dead drunk for two, who are tempted to go waste themselves that way. Wesley looks at them and understands that God loves them. And that's why he's out there preaching to him at 5 a.m. This is the vision. And I, I still find it, yes, we we in the Western Church, we've got our weak spots. We've got our ugly sides of our history. We're not perfect. 
we need to own that. But there's also, at the core of this, a really powerful message that points us, I think, to what is not only true, but also what's good. I think there's a luminous, powerful beauty to this, that it should attract us to it. God has more for us than we even dare hope or dream. And what he wants for us is to share the holy love of his own nature until we are transformed, till we actually live in that. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode, and we invite you to join us next time when Dr. Brown has a fascinating discussion with Asbury history graduate David Turley. They'll touch on what took Dave from a history major at Asbury to leading a real estate mortgage company in New York City. And as they do, you'll hear about Dave's deep concern for the poor and marginalized and for racial reconciliation. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, or recommendations for future episodes, feel free to email us at belong at asbury.edu. Belonging and Becoming is a production of Asbury University.